Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. Life-changing experiences can make you the person you become. That's Andy Chagger's story. He was caught up in one of the world's most lethal natural disasters, a tsunami. At the time, it swept through Thailand, causing major damage and killing over 5,000 people, including 2,000 foreign tourists. One of those was Andy's partner. When we witness these disasters on our TVs, we stare in shock and horror. How do you come back from actually being there and witnessing such devastation? How do you overcome your physical and emotional trauma? My guest today is Andy Chagger, a tsunami survivor. Good morning, Andy. Morning, Ralph. How are you? I'm, I'm very well. Thanks so much for joining me today. That's no problem. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's really nice to meet you, actually. I was just reading some stuff around what, what, what had gone on. It seems... Like only yesterday, I remember it um, when it was all reported. But um, how are you today? How has your day started? Yeah, good. Busy at work as always, but can't complain. You know, I'm uh, just very conscious as as always. There's a lot of people in uh, you know very difficult circumstances, so I uh, count my blessings where I can. You know, uh, how have you coped over the last year? I, I say eighteen months or so. But how's it been for you? This whole lockdown, pandemic stuff. I've I've actually been very lucky, I feel, um, for for a number of reasons. So my my wife and I welcomed our first child, our daughter Alice. Hey, congratulations! Um, yeah, thank you. So she was born last January, so literally just a, a couple of months um, before the pandemic started in the UK. And um, I was very fortunate in that I was furloughed from work for about ten weeks, which was unsettling. You know, and obviously you worry about longer term stuff in that situation, but it just gave me this incredible opportunity to, you know, be at home with her, um, you know, right from when she was, you know, two months till about five months when I went back to work and, you know, just had so much quality time with her and, 
that's kind of continued. I've been I've been back at work since about about a year now. You know, I was off for about three months, but working from home for a large part portion of that, and um, you know, just being able to save that commute time and spend it with her instead. It's it's it's. I've just been very lucky, you know. And um, as I say, it's it's. There's a lot of people who've, who've struggled a lot more than me. So again, thankful for that. No complaints. Well, that's really good. I hope you don't mind me going straight into to your story um, because it's an incredible story. Yeah, thank um, you. Not at all. I'm I'm more than happy to chat about anything. Yeah, sure. Um, and I know you do a lot of public speaking, so I'm sure you've told your story a, a million times. So forgive me if I'm asking you to repeat what you tell people. But take me back to I read that you 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 were sort of working as an engineer and you just felt you know you weren't being satisfied from your job and so you decided to to go off on this year's traveling and and one of the first places you ended up in was was Thailand am I right in what I've read yeah that's 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 pretty much it so I I originally um graduated as an electronic engineer and um moved to Germany pretty soon after after finishing so I'd done a year's placement there um, and then when I finished my course, they offered me a job. Um, so I spent about five years in in Munich and um, it was a good job. Don't get me wrong. Great career path. But I think I've always been motivated to try and make a social impact. And that kind of goes back to my mum. She was always very active in the community. She ran a depression alliance group. She was a school governor. So I suppose I had this, you know, you know this sense of service kind of instilled in me from a young age. And you know, I just I think, you know, while my job paid well and it was a good career, I didn't feel like it was it was doing a lot more other than making money for shareholders who, who probably already had quite a lot of money anyway. Um, so while I wasn't unhappy with it as such, I th- you know, I just wanted to do something that was, uh, you know, I felt a bit more aligned with as a, that, that sense of service. And, you know, part of the reason um, I wanted to go traveling as well with my with my partner Nova at the time, but it just seemed like a, you know, a good opportunity to kind of think about what I wanted to do at the same time you know it's that common story you want to do something else but when life and work is going on it's it's hard to find the headspace isn't it so I thought you know I could I could do while I was away for a year I could kind of think about what my options might be and um yeah we were we were just seven weeks in we'd, we'd flown to originally into Hong Kong um, and we'd spent about seven weeks making our way through mainland China Vietnam Cambodia and then had, had got to Thailand just before Christmas and our, our, uh, our plan was to spend Christmas there we had some friends coming from Germany to meet us um, and there was a, another friend of ours who um, he was basically leaving leaving his job in Europe to, to become a dive master so he was he was planning to do his training in Kaolack so you know we all kind of got heads together uh, and said, you know, let's let's do Kaolack for Christmas. So that's that's kind of how we ended up where we were. How, how old were you at the time when you went off on these travels? I was I was twenty seven. Um, so yeah, been been in work five years, and um, I don't know. You know, you hear a lot of stories about that that age being quite pivotal for for a lot of people. You kind of you know grown up enough to start being able to put some plans in motion, but you're still trying to figure out what it is you you want to do. So you ended up in Thailand and you were there on Christmas Day and no doubt that was a fun time, but it was over the Christmas night and on Boxing Day as we know it that things took a drastic turn. What can you remember? What can you share with me of those sort of early moments, Andy? 
Yeah, well, I mean, just to start, you're right. Christmas Day in itself was just fantastic. It was, um, you know, so we'd, we'd met friends. We'd, we spent the entire day on the beach. Um, it's a real kind of picture postcard town. Had, had just a wonderful day relaxing, catching up, opening presents, you know, eating delicious food. And it's... Um, Do you remember what you got for Christmas that day? Uh, I think I've got beachwear, you know, various. It wasn't a huge amount of stuff, but we'd we'd bought gifts for each other, which was which was nice. I say I think I think probably like a you know pair of shorts and flip flops and that kind of stuff. But you know, I always say it's you know I think one of the one of the reasons it was so hard coming to grips with what happened in the tsunami was just it's real that contrast between you know that that really perfect idyllic Christmas day. And then what happened literally, you know, first thing in the morning, the, the, the following day, it was just such a such a conflict. Um, and, and what I do remember was, um, you know, we'd been to bed quite late. We were up to about two, three in the morning, maybe just kind of chatting on the beach. Um, nothing wild, but having a couple of drinks. And then I remember waking up the, the next morning um, and myself and my, my partner Nova were in a, a beach bungalow, a strip of them. And they were kind of at right angles to the beach. So although we had windows, they were um, not facing the sea. So I remember kind of waking up and my partner Nova was already out of bed and she was looking around the room um, and kind of saying, what's happening, what's happening? And there was a noise, a bit like a jet engine building up is kind of the way I commonly describe it. It was just getting louder and louder and louder. And the, the room was starting to shake and that was getting more and more violent. You know, and I, I, so I remember waking up and Nova was out of bed already, uh, literally like six six feet away from me and, you know, saying, what's happening what's happening and I was I was quite disoriented so we'd been up quite late had a few drinks didn't know what was going on and then literally it was probably about 15 to 20 seconds later the the wave hit our bungalows and it it just took them down like dominoes um so they were you know they were concrete and brick so you know not not too insubstantial but it literally just just took them down in a line and I don't I don't really remember the exact moment of impact I remember being in the room and then the next thing I remember, I was just in the water. Um, and it was just this ferocious current. Um, you know, people have said to me, you know, it's a good job you're a, a strong swimmer, but it, it really doesn't. Um, you know, it's hard to picture unless you've been through it. There's, it doesn't matter how how strong a swimmer you are. There's just no fighting against that 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 pull in the water. And on top of that, it's you know, there was I, I describe it like tsunami soup. You know, so all that building wreckage. You know, the glass from the windows, uh, the metal tin from the roof. There's you know all sorts of things that you know people often in the developing world will save because it's a resource. So it'll just be stored outside the houses. Uh, you know, oil drums, all this kind of stuff. So it was just, you know, not only the force of the water, it was all this wreckage in it as well. You know, it's all sharp banging into you. And I remember surfacing for a moment. You know, I've been fighting for for breath and I came up and something pretty large um, hit me in the head. So I've got kind of a scar on my forehead um, that did that. And then that pushed me back under the under the water. So I was literally just kind of, again, another way I've described it is a, a, just a washing machine full of nails. Um, like just being spun end over end over end, you know, not knowing what was happening. And just just being dragged along uh, by the force of the water. When you woke up with Nova, j- just before the wave hit the property, did you ever sense something was about to to happen, or did it just you know, as you were disorientated from your night before, were you totally unaware? And was you at that point when the wave hit the bungalow, knocked unconscious? 
Yeah, I mean, we we knew something was happening because of the noise and the shaking. Something clearly wasn't right, but we had absolutely no idea what it was. As, you know, as I was saying, you know, we we had windows, but we because with the direction we were facing, um, we couldn't see anything. Uh, you know, so I, di- I didn't see the sea being pulled out like a lot of people were already on the beach, and I didn't see the wave coming in. So you know, we knew something was happening, but not not what. I, I don't know if I was knocked unconscious as such. I mean, I seem to remember being awake in the water pretty quickly. I may have been stunned, but it's it's funny. Like when I first got out of the wave, uh, which we can talk more about, like I, I couldn't remember being in the bungalow immediately. I couldn't even remember I was in Thailand. You know, I was just on this beach that was completely devastated. It looked like a nuclear bomb had gone off. And it wasn't until I would say maybe about 30 minutes later that actually it came back to me that I was in Thailand and that I was in with Nova and I could remember being in the bungalow before. So there was this say real disconnect. Again, it goes back to that contradiction between Christmas Day and Boxing Day. It was it was literally like this giant hand had just come down, swooped me up, picked me up out of my life and then just dropped me down in this this parallel universe that um, just, just wasn't my life. You know, I, did, I just couldn't understand how those two things connected, really. When, when you were in the water and you were being, as you rightly described it, um, thrown around like you're in a washing machine, how did you get out of the water? I mean, at what point, after you'd been hit by a, a lump of wood and had been knocked back under the water and then were being spun around in the sea, was it because you were a strong swimmer that you were able to sort of fight the waves or did something else happen no it was it was completely just luck as as i say it's you know there's no no swimming against that kind of current but what happened was i was i was i was washed along inland i think probably between 500 meters and a kilometer i was i was swept in total but as i was swept along i was swept through a a building site so i i presume it was a hotel that was being constructed so it was it was literally just the frame of the building so the concrete pillars and the concrete floors there was no walls yet put in and as i was swept along um basically my left leg was trapped against one of these pillars. So all that wreckage basically pinned me against the post. And that's actually what did uh, the majority of my injuries. My left calf was was pretty badly chewed up. Uh, I ended up having four operations on it, taking a lot of the muscle and the, the skin off the inside of my calf. That did the, the worst of my injuries, but I think it's fundamentally what saved my life. Because I was pinned there, I couldn't be dragged out into the bay um you know and i've I've seen footage of it afterwards you know it's almost like giant whirlpools going around so i think if i'd have been pulled out rather than trapped i probably would have drowned but i was also off the off the ground as well i think it was the first floor that i was trapped in so as as the water started to go down that kind of released the pressure from my leg so i was able to kind of get out but i was i was pretty badly beaten up and you couldn't do anything more than shuffle along but again, I was I was very, very fortunate in that I'd been trapped above ground because um, there was a second wave that came in. I think it was probably about 30 minutes. I'm not sure. Time was pretty distorted in that, that period I was trapped. But the second wave came in and I could hear that again. It was that same noise. So now I knew what was coming, which was obviously terrifying. And then I watched the second wave roll in and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm done for. Um, you know, now I was injured as well. There's really no chance I'm going to be able to survive this. But the second wave actually it rose and it probably stopped about four to six inches below where I was. So it was a slightly smaller wave and the water didn't reach as high. But again, because of that reason, I was trapped over ground. It meant I wasn't actually caught up in the second wave. 
Um, but it was, you know, absolutely terrifying because at that point I'd, I'd realised what was more what was happening. And this whole ordeal went on for about 30 minutes. So from the moment you were taken from your bungalow, there was a, a period of about 30 minutes that all this was going on. You were being swept out. You were being pushed around and trapped. This was going on for about 30 minutes. Well, the, the, the initial wave, it probably receded, you know, after a couple of minutes. But um, then the second wave came in about 30 minutes later. Um, but it was it was actually about four hours in total that I was kind of stuck on that building site. And I didn't know that because when I was eventually rescued, I asked what time it was. And I, I, I've got a, one of the things I've got a clear memory of is the guy said, oh, it's, it's about two o'clock. And I know the first wave struck about 10. So there were there was a period of about four hours where, you know, initially I didn't know what was happening. You know, I just I could just see this, you know, the whole beachfront it was three story buildings with a roof missing, you know, walls completely knocked out say it looked like a bomb had gone off and you know there was there was some other survivors at one point that had come over but they you know they were more focused I think on on their own shock and what they were doing and um, so they kind of drifted over didn't really say anything but wandered off there were then there was actually before the second wave there was a group of Thai guys who'd found me and they gave me a little bit of water and I knew they were trying to help me but I didn't speak any Thai they didn't speak any English and then they all they all suddenly disappeared there was a panic um you know so I was thinking you know where are you going what are you doing but that was just before then I heard the noise again so it was clear that they'd had advance warning that it was coming so they'd all they'd all run you know so I and I, I couldn't I remember you know I just couldn't understand why help wasn't forthcoming um you know I was really badly injured I was I, you know, I sleep naked so I was I was naked basically I was getting sunburn um you know my, my leg and my rest of my body was injured just remember kind of being on this pile of rubble and glass um, and I was just thinking, you know, where, where's the ambulance? Where's the rescue services? And, you know, I know now that actually the entire coastline was devastated. So, you know, there just wasn't any help. It was just, you know, people doing what they could to help each other. You know, the emergency services were, you know, locally were, were devastated as well. So, so yeah, there was this, you know, just say four, four hour period, which just seemed like a, an eternity at the time. You, you've described it as a terrifying experience. I mean, I can't imagine. We often see the images of the aftermath, you know, these destructions, this disaster, you know, floating debris in the sea and the land completely destroyed. Just tell me a little bit about about your emotions during this time. I mean, obviously you were in a state of panic, in a state of shock. I mean, what can you remember? I mean, I know it's many years on now and you're a calm, collected guy who's kind of recovered from this to the extent that you can. But at the time that it's happening, when we witness these sorts of things on television, we're in shock and horror. But you live this experience. I mean, what was going through your mind? And we haven't talked about Nova yet. I mean, during this period, you were, you know, your instincts were to survive, no doubt. But just tell me a little bit about what you were thinking, what your emotions were doing, how scared were you? You know, I mean, tell me more about that, Andy. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a real, real roller coaster of, of emotions. And, you know, it has been a while, but, you know, that, that period particularly is, you know, all the timelines jumbled, like vivid memories of, of it. And, you know, t- fear was definitely part of it, um, you know, both for myself, but also for, for Nova. Um, you know, I was saying earlier, initially I couldn't remember where I was, but when I, 
um, did, then obviously I was incredibly concerned about Nova. You know, I didn't know where she was. You know, I knew what I'd been through, so I was, you know, very scared as to what had happened to her. But at the same time, I was, you know, very conscious that it was touch and go for me. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. And, you know, part of me was, you know, my brain was saying, you know, just, you know, try and just focus on yourself for now. You've got to get through this uh, as a priority because you can't help anyone else etc but then you know there's kind of guilt for for feeling like that at the same time and um, you know I was worried about our other friends because we'd met them there so you know and they were a couple of bungalows down um, you know so it was all that kind of stuff you know real confusion and again that that kind of contradiction just real strange image that I'll never get out of my head is is kind of you know if I, if I looked up laying on that building site there was you know palm trees overhead kind of gently swaying in the breeze it was beautiful tropical sky you know blue skies a few clouds here and there but just looked like paradise and then if i looked down and um, there was literally dead bodies all this wreckage you know it looked like a say a bomb had gone off and again it's just trying to try to reconcile those two images in my head you know it's just that real contra contradiction again you know and i i remember you know just really not sure if i was gonna gonna make it or not but I do distinctly remember at that point that, you know, just coming back to kind of what I was doing, I kind of, it's strange, but I almost made a promise to myself, like, if I do get out of this, you know, actually, I'm I'm going to do something I feel more passionate about. You know, I, I, you know, I'm not, although I had a good job, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. And it wasn't satisfying me personally. And it's strange, even that time with all that emotion and other stuff going on, I really felt, well, you know, this is this is kind of a, a wake up call to me, you know, this is this is actually time is limited if you want you know i could you know and if i get out of this i need to to do something that i feel more more satisfied with how were you rescued in the end so i was actually um pulled out by a couple of guys who were part of the diving community so it was basically i was laying there and i said this must have been getting on for two o'clock and after the initial group of tires had found me and then had to flee because of the second wave i hadn't seen anyone else so you know i was getting more and more desperate you know incredibly thirsty say getting sunburned and then I, I heard western voices below me I, I basically shouted um and they answered me you know where are you and I said I'm up here and a couple of guys came up and they I, I didn't know this at the time but they were part of the local diving community and they were literally just walking the beachfront um you know just doing whatever they could to to help other people and, you know, they came up and they started chatting to me. And I, I remembered one of them was called Gonzalo. I couldn't remember the other guy's name at the time. Um, and they said, look, we're going to try and help you, but we need to get a stretcher. And uh, they asked if I could walk. And I said, no, I don't think so. And they said, look, we're going to try and find a door or something we can use to carry you. And I said, OK. And then um, literally a couple of minutes later, someone else came running down the beach and said, hey, there's another wave coming, guys. You've got to go. And I remember them, again, really vivid, vivid memory. I remember them um, basically saying, look, it's up to you. We're not going to leave you. Do you want to try and walk out of here? You know, if we'll help you on either side of you. And I just remember just, yeah, again, this intense feeling of gratitude that these guys would, uh, you know, because as far as they knew, there was another wave coming. But they were, you know, they were, they were willing to put themselves in danger in order to, to get me off that, that beach. And, um, you know, so we, we stood up. Um, they got one either side of me. They walked me down the stairwell, which was quite tricky, quite narrow, you know, no banister rail. It was just the concrete steps. Got me down to the beach level. And it was really at that point that I realized how bad it was. I kind of had a view from the, the top, but I'd lost my glasses. And then when I got down, I could see, you know, there was, there was literally bodies, body parts everywhere. And as they were walking up the beach, they obviously wanted to take the quickest, most direct route. 
Um, and I remember at one point stopping that there was a, a body in front of us and they were trying to step over. And I, I was struggling to articulate it, but I couldn't because of my leg injury. So, you know, there was kind of this awkward pause as they were trying to drive us forward and I was trying to take us off to the side. And then they, you know, they eventually realized what the issue was and we kind of weaved round and basically walked me up to the main road, which is elevated in Cowlap. There's kind of a hill down to the beach. And then almost as soon as we got there, there was a, it was just like, you know, kind of one of those marquees without the sides. Someone had obviously put it up for a shade structure to kind of do triage. Uh, and they sat me down at, on the curb under that. And then there was, um, I don't know if it was a doctor or a paramedic. Um, there was someone who kind of assessed me and was like, oh, he needs to go. And there was a pickup truck waiting. So I would, they literally just almost immediately put me in the back of the pickup truck. So I didn't have any time to like, you know, find out any details, any contact details. They literally just put me in the pack of the truck. It was, you know, thanks. And that was it. We parted ways. Now they were, they were eventually tracked down a number of years later. And I was connected to them. So that's how I kind of kind of found out, you know, what the other guy's name was and stuff and got a chance to say thank you. But that was, you know, 10 years after the fact or something like that. Wow. Up until then, it was just, you know, these anonymous heroes who'd, who'd come along and, and saved my life, really. Such a privilege, isn't it, to be able to go back and say thank you to those who are your heroes, but not just for you. I'm sure they were involved in helping lots of other people. What What happened to Nova, Andy? She didn't make it, unfortunately. So when I'd kind of got down to the beach and, you know, just seen how bad it was, I think, again, that was part of me that that realised it was probably very unlikely. But again, I I suppose I I just tried to kind of shut it out and focus on what I was doing. You know, the hope kept coming back. You know, I was was moved through a number of different hospitals, about four on the first day, first aid stations and then hospitals. And, you know, I remember sitting that first night kind of being in the hospital and looking around and again, not not having my glasses and just thinking, oh, and that person looks a bit like her. Is that her? And then it wasn't, you know, so part of me just thought, you know, I can't see how she's made it, but part of me just didn't want to let, let go of the, of the chance, you know, part of the reason I didn't, first of all, I wasn't that keen to be repatriated. Like I wanted to stay in Thailand and I was about there 10 days in total before I was, I was flown home and, my family were on the phone to me at various points and saying, you know, do we want to get you home? And I was like, no, I, you know, I want to stay here because I didn't want to come back and then find out she was somewhere else in Thailand, you know, but eventually I, you know, I was brought home and it was, it was ultimately about six months later that they identified her remains was, it was basically done through a combination of dental records and some jewelry that she was wearing so you know in in the aftermath the police had you know come for description and got a hairbrush for some dna and all that kind of stuff um and i'd given some photos of of that we'd managed to to save from christmas day they were on someone else's camera and she was she was wearing a particular necklace and um it was a combination of those things that, that led to the positive identification but that was like six months after the fact i think and had you not given up hope in all those six months that maybe she had survived and was somewhere in Thailand being cared for? Or yeah, I think you know you never really give up hope. But I think I think once I'd got back to the UK about ten days later, that was the majority of it was gone. You know, you always you always keep a, something alive, don't you? You know, um, but I think you know for me being there, having lived through it myself, and then having seen the aftermath on the beach. You know, the, the logical part of me was, was you know, had already reached the conclusion that she hadn't made it, unfortunately. But the emotional part of me was, was, was still clinging on a little bit. And you were with a group of other friends. Were there any other survivors? 
Yeah, so um, there was another couple with us, and she made it, but he didn't, unfortunately. And the the friend that we'd met, who was trained to be a dive master, was was happily he was staying off the beach, so he was in an elevated part of town. So thankfully, he wasn't caught up in the actual wave. I mean, obviously, seriously affected by by what had happened, and you know, being there in the aftermath and stuff. But um, he was a real rock guy called Rick. Um, you know, he did what he could in Cowlack for a few days and um, he visited both me and our other friend who survived. He, he came up to Bangkok as soon as he could because that's where we were eventually moved to. So, you know, he was doing a lot in terms of liaising with the family and liaising with the hospital and, and stuff like that. He's still there. Um, you know, he had to had to cancel his dive plans and he, he went to Bangkok and, you know, had a plan B to be an English teacher for a few months because obviously, you know, diving wasn't on the agenda in Cowlack, but... You know, he, he he went back and he eventually did his dive master and has a Thai wife and a couple of Thai children now. So he's he's still there, bless him. How did the experience change your life? I mean, every way you could possibly imagine, Raph. I mean, it, it, it literally nothing was the same after after Thailand and and what had happened with the tsunami. You know, obviously. You know, losing Nova was was a massive part of that. I mean, I was devastated. We'd you know we'd we'd planned to after traveling for a year to you know raise a family and buy a house and uh, you know kind of settle down in the, in the UK. So all all that was off the agenda, and you know that was devastating both from losing Nova, but also you know relationship with her family you know thankfully that's still really strong and we're you know they are still family to me but you know I remember almost grieving that as well you know like Nova's not here and you know we're all so close as with with each other's families and stuff and it, it changed completely my perspective on life and what was important you know I was questioning it a little bit before but then you know seeing it firsthand and having lived through something like that I just couldn't possibly imagine going back to a job and a career you know, that, that didn't feel meaningful from a kind of social impact point of view, you know, so everything kind of changed, you know, personal life, career, work. And I, I made a, I didn't have like a I direct, this is what I'm going to do after this. Um, you know, I was completely at a loss in many ways, but I, I felt a really, really strong urge right from pretty much immediately afterwards that I, I wanted to go back to Thailand and help in some way. And there, there was a, a number of reasons for that. It was, you know, seeing it firsthand and how, how devastated it was. It was also trying to just say thank you a little bit to the locals that had helped me because, I mean, they, honestly, they were unbelievable. You know, just how much loss they'd suffered, but were still, you know, doing absolutely everything they could to help tourists who were there. You know, I heard stories of a, you know, a guy whose baby was missing, week old, and he was just, you know, just driving tourists back and forth and trying to feed people. Yeah, you know, and I don't know how you do that in that kind of situation, but he just—that's what he was doing. He was just helping, helping tourists. So trying to, trying to, trying to repay that in some way. And it was also just going back to that disconnect. You know, I just it, for the whole time afterwards, it took me about seven months before I was able to go back. But it just didn't feel my my life. You know, it was like, how have I got here? You know, everything was was so perfect. I was on this dream trip. I was with Nova, and you know, now I am needing physiotherapy and you know, more hospital appointments. And I just really had this idea in my head, rightly or wrongly, that if I went back on my own legs, uh, it would kind of help me join those two sides together and kind of reconcile the life before and the life I had now. So I, I went back and um, the original plan was to to be there for a while, maybe six months, but just volunteer for personal reasons. But it it ended up changing everything. I, I went back and I um, volunteered with a, with a great local organisation called the Tsunami Volunteer Centre. 
Um, I mean, and they were set up as a framework for utilizing foreign volunteers, try to capture that energy and that, you know, that spirit, uh, which they did very well. So I ended up running a construction project and kind of in the course of that, just got really into uh, international development, um, what was involved in that, got really interested in it. So I decided after, I ended up spending a year in Thailand uh, as a volunteer. <laughs> and then I'd... How do you do that, though? Most people would be terrified to go back to that same environment where not only had you lost the love of your life, Nova, but you were running the risk of being caught up in, in a similar situation. It's very brave of you, Andy, to go back and, and do that. What drove that? Yeah, thank you. Well, as I say, it was, you know, it was, it was those things, of seeing it firsthand, wanting to say thank you to the locals. Um, and also just just trying to reconcile my life before and after the tsunami with it, with the key drivers with it. And, you know, I think stubbornness plays a part as, as well as bravery. Uh, you know, as, I was going to say, I just felt incredibly driven to do it. And, um, you know, I remember my, my poor mum's face when I told her I was I was going back. Uh, but bless her, she was incredibly supportive. I could see she thought it was a terrible idea. Uh, obviously, you know, all the things she'd had to go through with, you know, everything in the aftermath and stuff. But, you know, she supported my choice. And it, it turned out, that, honestly, to be the best decision I could have I could have ever made. You know, and that was, you know, for a number of reasons. You know, it was, it was finding out I was really interested in international development, which I then moved on to. But it was also just the, the perspective because, you know, I was – I was absolutely devastated, uh, you know, losing Nova um, and everything that went along with that. But then, you know, when I went back, I was project managing a village reconstruction project and the locals in that village that lost the house, they'd lost um, their fishing boats, they'd lost the fishing equipment, you know, and more often than not, they'd lost, you know, more than one member of their family. And being able to, you know, they were grieving, but they were, I could see them over time start to move on. You know, they were laughing with each other. They were having a bit of a joke start, you know, rebuilding and looking towards the future. And, you know, I, I say I was devastated, but I had money in the bank, you know, I, I could live with my family, all of these things they didn't have. And that that really just gave me that perspective that actually, look, you know, if these guys can do it, um, you can certainly do it as well. So absolutely the best best decision I could have made, both for my immediate recovery, um, but also in then kind of what I went on to do off the back of that. Because I, after spending a year there, I... Um, went to back to university I did a master's in international development and then basically that that set me on on the path of of working for charities which I've been doing ever since so you know it really did change absolutely everything and in in the course of when I finished my master's I I went to volunteer again in Peru after an earthquake and that's where I ended up meeting Emma who's now my wife and you know we say we've got a daughter so you know, I, I, I you know, obviously wish the tsunami hadn't happened. I you know, wish Nova hadn't been killed. But by the same token, none of what I would be doing now would have ha- would be here if that hadn't have happened. So, you know, it's it's not really an either or, is it? You know, you can't say actually. I, I prefer this, but it's there's it's there's stuff so much positive that has come out of it as well as the negative. Yeah, and that's it, turning a negative into a positive. You you talked about the physical injuries that you sustained. I mean, what was the outcome of that? You you mentioned your leg had been seriously damaged. Did you recover from that? Was it just superficial in the sense that maybe a few scars, but not life-changing? 
Yeah, no, yeah, I was, I was very, very lucky. Um, you know, so it, it wasn't just my leg. You know, I'd, I'd broken my right shoulder. I mean, I was pretty badly chewed up. There wasn't a part of me that wasn't bruised or gouged out in some way. My, my leg was the worst, but it, it, it turned out it wasn't structural. So I've kind of got like three holes running up my left leg: a big one on my calf, and then a smaller one on my knee, and then a, a, a you know, about fifty pps on my thigh. But the, the one on my knee was literally about half a centimeter from the main ligament that runs down the front. You know, and the doctor said to me, look, you are so lucky. If this had just been another centimeter across to the left, then, you know, you'd have been months in physiotherapy, if not years. You know, and I, I may have severely lost the loose use of that leg. Um, you know, whereas as it stands, it's, it still gets a little bit tired. And my balance has never been completely right. You know, sometimes I kind of stand up if I'm not paying attention. I'll kind of stagger a little bit. But generally, it doesn't, it doesn't limit me. You know, so again, in that way, I'm just in, incredibly fortunate it could have been could have been so much worse. How did you deal with the grief of losing Nova? And I know you mentioned that, you know, within months you were back out trying to contribute and help and say thank you. But how did you how did you deal with the grief? I mean, that was by far and away the worst part of it for me. I mean, it's it's you know, there's a natural, I think, tendency for people to gravitate towards the physical in- injuries. Because it's obviously something, you know, you can see and you can touch and it's obvious, isn't it? Whereas for me, I actually didn't care about my leg at the time. It was all about Nova and losing her and losing our, our plan for our life together. And, you know, it, it, it took a very long time to, to kind of deal with that. You know, going back helped in that, as I gave me that perspective. And as I was project managing uh, a village reconstruction, it gave me a focus, uh, you know, something that actually I felt that someone needed me. So I could kind of, you know, put that grief away for a little while and, and get on with actually doing something constructive. Just bottled it up for a long, long time. And I think part of that was being in Thailand. So, you know, I was there for 10 days and obviously my family and Nova's family were all talking. And, you know, it just felt strange coming back after the fact. You know, no no negative sentiment on them because they were all incredibly supportive. But I just felt this real disconnect, like they'd already gone through part of that process and I was running behind. So, you know, and it, it, talking about it was also very traumatic in general, you know, so I, I just bottled it up for a long time, really, you know, and that, that led to all sorts of, you know, just, just, I remember, you know, just being very upset, very angry as well. I mean, I, I saw a couple of counsellors, one quite soon afterwards, didn't really gel, so it didn't really go anywhere. But then this was when I was doing my master's degree, so a couple of years after the fact. And I remember just being incredibly angry, like, you know, being on a night out and, and just feeling like I was I was going to get into a fight for no reason. You know, it was just, just all this this resentment and anger building up. And um, it was kind of at that point, I, I suppose I had a word with myself and thought, actually, you know, maybe you should try counselling again. So I did through uni. They had a student service. And that time was actually, it, it, we just I just got on really well. With a, with a lady in question. And I found that a really, really helpful process. Probably saw her on a weekly basis for about two to three months. You know, so that that kind of helped deal with that. But again, that was two years after the fact. And then, it, you know, it still still kind of carried on. Um, still does to this day, to a degree. Um, but, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm you know, fortunate to be, to be married and have a daughter again now. So you, you, eventually you build a new life, don't you? You know, you, you start putting things in place that, that replace those things that you've lost and I don't say I don't think there was ever a particular moment where you can say okay that's it I'm done now and I'm over that because it, it doesn't work like that but at some point it transitioned to being more negative than more positive sorry more positive than more negative 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose building those memories with your current wife and your daughter helps not replace, but, you know, it, it builds on your, your past experience and, and that does allow you to, to move on. Um, the humanitarian work that you you did, how long did that go on for? And was that just based in Thailand or did you do that in other places? Yeah, no, I went um, all around the world for, for a long time, really. So we um, so I went to Thailand first, as I say, for a year, decided I wanted to, to kind of commit to this as I did my Master's in International Development. I then went to Peru and for about nine months. That was in a city called Pisco where they had an earthquake. And I, so I was there for about nine months. And then um, while I was there, because interestingly, quite a few of the volunteers in Thailand had also gone to Peru as well. Um, it's a bit of an international community of, of people who do this this kind of stuff. And, you know, while I was there, I had the perhaps naive idea of setting up a, a charity that would kind of follow this model and utilize volunteers who, who you know, wanted to get, give something back, but do it in a bit more of a structured way. You know, so a, a group of us, um, you know, my wife included, she was a co-founder. We, we set up a, a charity called International Disaster Volunteers. Um, and that was really end of kind of 2008 that we kind of started that. Took a while to get set up, register as a charity. It was all standing start. So we like literally, you know, we none of us had any money or any rich contacts. But then eventually by um 2010, we were, we were kind of ready to go. So there was then the, the big earthquake in Haiti, if you remember that. I was there. I went out. Oh, were there. you? I, I went well, out okay. just after, yeah. Where, whereabouts were I you? I was in Port-au-Prince, actually. I was focused on all the children that had been displaced, who'd been sort of, living in sort of care homes, if you like, um, and a lot of them were, were destroyed. And so I went out and did a story about the orphans and and there were two girls in particular who were trying to take a number of orphans that they were working at, at a charity home back into Philadelphia, I think it was, or Pennsylvania, um, and they were um, criticised for trying to smuggle children out of Haiti. Don't know if you remember that story, but yeah, I remember I, I, similar I, ones, if not that one. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of good. In- it's, it's a it's a difficult environment. Lots of good intentions can get very complicated very quickly. But yeah, so we were in Port-au-Prince, so you know, maybe in, we were not there until a few months after, so we might not have overlapped. But do you remember, you know, the airport? We were not not far down the road, the Clairson area. So if the airport's on the left, you go going along the main road and then there's a right-hand turn we were literally based just just down there like 10 minutes walk from the airport also did quite a lot of work with orphanages charity still partners with a with an orphanage there to to this day but we were there for about 18 months then after after the back of that we so we, we pulled the volunteers out but carried on supporting local projects then we um we went to manila end of 2012 so beginning of 2012 um, and that was more of a risk reduction type of project. Uh, so, you know, communities that flood a lot, it's very, very prone to typhoons as the Philippines where it's based. So that would, that was more trying to mitigate and, um, help a community that was hit often become, become more prepared. Um, and then there was Typhoon Haiyan in 2013. So, so not as we were just coming to the end of what we were doing in Manila, Manila, that typhoon hit. So based out of a city called Tacloban there for, for probably about a year as well. And then by this point, I was doing more of the management and being there all the time. 
but then there was the, the Nepal earthquakes that happened in, in 2015 as, as well. So the charity was there for, again, about 18 months in, in total. So, so yeah, so I ended up probably, it was about nine years running IDV and then two to three years volunteering with other organizations as, as well. So over, over a decade of international response. How, how do you process all that you see and witness? Because, you know, your first experience was witnessing, you know, dead bodies all around you, losing your, your loved one. But then you go and put yourself into these environments where you see it again and again and again. Um, you know, people often use the word desanitize, you know, where you, you, you often yeah. start to overlook it. But how how does somebody who witnesses this regularly for the periods that you did built off of the back of your own experience how do you process and cope with that and move forward in life yeah i mean it's a, it's a great question and it's 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 not one that i can obviously answer from other people's perspective you know i think for me having kind of lived through that and been so closely impacted by it i kind of went into those subsequent deployments and projects obviously with my eyes wide open um, you know, because I'd seen it firsthand. And, you know, obviously when you're, you're trying to get into humanitarian work, this is often something you're told, um, you know, you, are you sure you're ready for this? It's going to be quite a traumatic thing. You know, it's not for everybody. You don't really know how you're going to react until you do it for the first time. You know, whereas because I'd been through it, I think I went in with my eyes open. So in many ways it was it was good preparation. And, you know, I had been desensitized to it to a large extent. And I think... Yeah, it's probably it's definitely not a good thing, but you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about kind of bottling it up in a way, like I'd I'd kind of shut myself down emotionally for a long time. You know, I put up a lot of walls. Um, you know, it was such a such a devastation losing Nova and going through all that. I kind of able put these psychological walls up and didn't really let people in. And I suppose that kind of shield, although it wasn't healthy for me in the long term, it also helped me when I went into those further disasters at the early stages because, you know, I just got quite used to, you know, putting my emotions in a box and trying to put them away, you know, and then focusing on the on the task in, in hand. So that's that's what it kind of happened in my case. Um, I'm sure other people have got different stories and different approaches, you know. I think, you know, in terms of coming back is always a big thing and, you know, being able to talk to people who've shared those experiences because it's you know i think i'm sure you ask any humanitarian they will tell you the same thing it's it's really hard often coming back from these types of scenarios because you know you come back to the uk and people are complaining about the weather or you know what you would perceive as minor gripes you know i've seen people in haiti literally eat mud because they're that poor um, and then you've got someone complaining that you know their their latte is cold and it just you know makes you quite angry at times it's like it's just like you know what are you on about you, know, you don't know how lucky it is but you know it's not their fault because they haven't been exposed to that and you hope they never should be but having someone else who's kind of you know seen those kind of things and experienced those kind of things where you can you know just share that experience and your frustrations is is really important and Again, I suppose I'm, I'm fortunate in that I say my wife was in Peru. That's where I met her. And, you know, she was one of the co-founders of the charity and we, we did it together, which had its own drawbacks. Don't get me wrong as well at times. Um, but it also brought a lot of positives in that we could really lean on, on each other and, you know, share those kind of feelings and frustrations as well. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, I as a journalist have been to many locations where I've witnessed similar situations and you do come back 
to well, I come back to London or to England and you do get really angry by the things people say and the things that you witness even being able to turn on your own bathroom water tap kind of annoys you because people are struggling to get water but then as the weeks go past it you, it just becomes normalized again and you continue and often displaced are you still doing the work that you've been doing over the years or now you and Emma have settled down with your child and uh, are things changed yeah, they've, they've they've changed again. So, I mean, it got to, so it's about 2015 and, you know, me and Emma were talking about buying a house and, and raising a family and it, it just, while IDV was, was growing and it was doing really well, it wasn't growing at the speed we needed it to in order to, to be able to have our, our family life as well. You know, so we, we, we made this decision, which was difficult that we were, um, you know, going to move away from that full time and, and try and find a bit more stability. So the charity is still carried on, which is great. You know, it's much smaller than it was, and I still volunteer for it. But we support still a, a couple of local community projects. But we, me and Emma, have both moved into um, other charities. So I now, I now run a youth employment charity, which is, you know, it's it's great. Uh, don't get me wrong, really rewarding very different to what I used to do in terms of a cause but I've you know I've obviously brought a lot of knowledge and experience and just in terms of charity governance running an organization all, all that kind of stuff so there, there is still that that kind of golden thread running through what I'm doing since although it's it's a different area you know I think fundamentally the the main thing is it's you know it's, it's charity related it's about social impact because that remains you know fundamentally the biggest driver for me and what's uh, the aim of the charity so we youth we youth employment. So it's it's fine helping young people, often those who've who've struggled or you know maybe faced some challenges in the past, to access jobs, apprenticeships, work experience, um, anything that's career related, basically. And you know, obviously, right now it's a it's a it's a really important cause because you know I, I don't know how much you know about youth unemployment, but it, you know, COVID and the impacts have have been massive on young people. They've they've in many ways bore the the brunt of it, particularly from an economic point of view. You know, according to ONS, that sixty percent of all job losses due to the pandemic are, have been in young people aged twenty four and under. You know, so it's uh, it's a really tough time for for many young people, and you know, many many of them are looking for a second chance as well. So it's you know, it's something I am genuinely passionate about. I don't have that personal connection in the same way as I do to the tsunami but you know I, I come from res, raised by a single parent pretty much uh you know come from a working class council estate so it is it is a cause that still resonates with me even if not quite to the same degree as the the tsunami and humanitarian work you mentioned second chance what what does a second chance mean to you have you you know been given a second chance you've taken a second chance what does it mean to you Andy yeah absolutely I mean I I, I definitely feel I've been given a a second chance and you know this goes back to you know really being on that building site after the tsunami um you know i say it was about four hours and you know there were there were times i was i was i was pretty sure i wasn't going to make it as i said earlier i kind of made that promise to myself if i did i would do something i felt more drawn to and attracted to as a as a cause rather than you know just a just a job that was making money and i think in many ways i feel very fortunate to have had that realization when i did because Talking to other people, just you know, generally, I think I think a lot of people perhaps have that feeling, you know, when they're older, and you know, not necessarily they want to help, but they want to do something. They've got something that they want to do, but they, they feel the timing's not right. You know, there's commitments, there's other things that are taking a focus, and then they get, finally get to that point, and it's too late, and they're too old to do anything about it. 
you know whereas because i i you know i was literally on my deathbed and thought you know this is i may not make it out of this i i that realization and that that kind of reflection was forced on me you know so kind of everything's been driven by that you know time is limited uh you've got to kind of you know do what you're passionate about when you've got the time and the energy to do it so that's been a massive driver for me in in working with charities and again i wish in many ways i wish the tsunami had never happened but at the same time i feel fortunate that you know it gave me that motivation and that impetus at a time when actually i could do something about it if something like that were to happen again, I hope it doesn't, you know, but even if it's, you know, 30, 40 years in the future and I'm, I'm kind of at the end, however long it is, I, I know with much more certainty that I'll be able to look back and, you know, feel like actually, you know, I've made a difference or I've at least had a go. Do you know what I mean? I've, I've, I've tried it. Uh, even if it, do, even if it doesn't work out exactly as I planned, I've at least had that opportunity to do it. So, you know, and that, that for me is a real second chance. Your story is incredible. Your journey is incredible. The work that you've done is incredible. You, you know, you're an incredible individual, resilient and, and, and much more. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your, your journey with me. If people who are listening to this want to get involved in your charity uh, or want to find out more about you and the work that you're doing, how can they do that, Andy? Yeah, so well, I mean, there's there's a couple of things. So I've I've got my um, own website, as you say. I do a bit of speaking. Um, I haven't done much, obviously, over COVID and stuff like that. But it's that's that's speaker.andychaggart.com. Also, you know, in terms of young people, young people really need the help. You know, always looking for employers, organisations that are willing to give a, a young person who needs it an opportunity. And we're called Talent Rise. So we've got a, a website which is talentrise.org. Excellent. And do you have any social media platforms? Are you on Instagram, Twitter, and the things that people use today? Yeah. So, so um, I've my I've got a speaker page on Facebook for sure. Um, Talent Rise is is on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all of those all of those places. So, you can definitely definitely find that charity on there as well. Cool. Well, we'll make sure that that detail is in the description. Andy, thank you so much for sharing your story, and good luck with what you're doing in the future. Thank you very much, Raph. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for the for the chance to come on and chat. Andy Chagger's story is incredible. What a man, full of resilience and determination. And the humanitarian work that he's done since his own experience is telling of the type of character he is. Well done, Andy. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. It'd be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.